You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and welcome to episode 158, or is it 160, 162? Uh, you, know, you know what? Is it- I am so out of sorts. <laughs> <laughs> We've recorded so many episodes. You know, so many times we are recording right down to, like, the guest. We're recording, and it's it's yeah. airing tomorrow morning. Um this is and not the case. This is not the it's, case. Uh, this time we're, this, we're well ahead of the game. We're well ahead of the game, and I'm getting so it is 158. Yeah, we are in the the podcast time machine, as I like to call it, <laughs> and uh, and we do have really fun guests, and someone we've had wanted to have on. What we've referenced the original list of of potential guests uh, every once in a while, and this, this was, was an organization that was on that original list. I think it was like 15 or 20 different organizations. I think this was like one of three left that we didn't touch. Wow. On. So, and it took us this long to yeah, to yeah. orchestrate it. But with that, we have a representative from the American Literal Society on. So uh, I'm going to let him introduce himself. So All right, there you take go. Take it away. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Um, I'm Captain Al Majeski. I'm the Habitat Restoration Program Director for the American Little Society. And I've probably been there since right after Superstorm Sandy. So uh, kind of came in when, when restoration was starting to hit – Hit the road, I guess, you know, hit the erosion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that was such a, a weird time in the industry for us. We were we were on the verge of having this incredible year, and then Superstorm Sandy hit, and everything just stopped because projects that were getting ready to – or restorations that were getting ready to happen no longer could happen. Like the jobs just didn't exist anymore. The fundings got pulled projects weren't capable of like they had to be redesigned it was like the day the world stopped here in the office because not only did we not have power we didn't have phones we didn't have internet for a good week like yeah. when it turned back on still nothing <laughs> nothing and, happened and to yeah. give yeah. a little people more context too we are not in a coastal area we are on the opposite side of the state of new jersey so we i don't even know how many miles it was 40 50 miles away from the coastline yeah and uh, and we were out of power for a week and and had all kinds of flooding in this area as well. So um, yeah, you can I, only I imagine what it was like down the coast. Yeah, I live in Bradley Beach, so um, we did pretty good overall because we had sand dunes in place. Mm-hmm. Um, that really saved us. I think saved this town as you drove down Ocean Ave and saw other towns that were just ripped apart because they didn't have anything on their beaches. Um, I, I guess I have a question for you guys, though. Sure. Before Superstorm Sandy – because I've been doing presentations lately on the evolution of restoration in New Jersey since Superstorm Sandy. And partly to me, and this is my question to you after I, I say, state this, was beforehand restoration was happening, but it wasn't a priority. It was more mitigation. Mm-hmm. Um, were you seeing that too uh, in your industry? Because we come to you for plants, you know? It, it was a lot of mitigation. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about projects, mm-hmm. and a lot of them were, were private. Uh, um, there were mitigation or they were reclamation almost. Uh, but restoration was happening because we were doing a lot in in New York City. Um, 
a lot mm-hmm. in Maryland at that point for projects like Poplar Island. Uh, I wouldn't mm-hmm. that would you call that a restoration? Yeah, that is that's one that falls in that weird gap where it was a. I guess yeah, it somewhat was a yeah. restoration because it was an island that completely disappeared and they then completely rebuilt it bigger than it's. It's yeah. definitely using the reference so, restoration yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah, so I I think it was happening mm-hmm. at a, at a decent clip. The projects were big. After Superstorm Sandy, Sandy, they stopped for a good. The big projects stopped for a good three to four years. Mm-hmm. They they had to be redesigned and they were waiting for funding to come across. Um, and then you started seeing. Uh, <clears throat> Restorations for what happened from from Superstorm Sandy, like I, I'm thinking a prime hook uh, in Slaughter Beach in uh, the Delaware Inland Bays was like the first big one that came across. Yeah, uh, I know the, the society and, and and our team and our partners, like you know, Wildlife Restoration Partnerships, Stocking University, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, we kicked into gear right away after Superstorm Sandy down in Delaware Bay. It wasn't with plants; it was with sand. Was putting sand back on the beaches for the horseshoe crab that was coming in what, four or five months, and uh, a lot of emergency permits. Everybody really pulled together on that effort to get enough sand on the beach so those crabs could spawn and provide those eggs for the shorebirds, like the you know the federal listed red, red knot. Mm-hmm. That bird's got to fatten up seven times its weight and fly to the Arctic. And without those eggs, it could have wiped it. It could have decimated that whole population. Yeah, and that was just one of the issues, that, like having to mm-hmm. be having to be fixed, and it's. It's funny because right now I feel like we're seeing a little bit of a lull in it again, but we know that it's coming back in full force over the next three to five years. Yeah, yeah. So. And definitely definitely marsh restoration for sure. And, you know, when you think about carbon sequestration or, you know, getting cleaning the air with more marsh and that resiliency of what a marsh can provide communities, that's what we're working on pretty heavily now too besides beach and dune and berm and oyster reef, all these components together. I think we've done since Sandy, we've done over fifty restoration projects, mm-hmm. and some of them now are in the multi-million dollar range, if, if not bigger. Well, yeah. we're we're the one thing that we were, you know, you kind of know in the in the back of your head that this is happening. But Tom and I, um, a week or two ago, attended the Society of American Military Engineers conference that was right around mm-hmm. the corner from us at the Eco Complex, Rutgers Eco Complex, yeah, yeah. and. One of the things they were talking about was with climate change and sea level rise, marshes drowning mm-hmm. and having to prepare to create new marshes where they need mm-hmm. to be created, which is a whole nother issue that we haven't even begin began to, to even talk about. Like we've talked about climate change and what does that mean for, for provenance, for plants and if you're planting something that's a long-lived tree, where should that seed be coming from given climate change? We haven't even talked about the destruction of our our coastal marshes and what needs to, to happen to prepare for that. Yeah, I mean we, we talk about that all the time, you know, within my my group of people. And it's like you you have to do it in, in my opinion, you have to do it in steps. You still want to keep that low marsh. And you, the high marsh is going to be more resilient. You know, like Peyton's is more resilient to temperatures and stuff like that. But you, you have to make it, in my opinion, more programmatic in raising the elevations of the, of these marshes over time. And how do you do that? You, you hope you collect the sediment. You know, the plants keep collecting that and raising that up. Um, same with our oyster reefs. You hope you get a great set and those oysters keep growing on top of each other to compete with sea level rise. And I know that um, 
on our beaches in Delaware Bay, where we had oyster reefs that we built by hand. I think we did 25,000 bag shell bags of, all by hand and built eight reefs down there. So it's like 3,200 3, linear feet of reef, right? Wow. And a lot of it, all by hand, that's amazing to me that people came down and they, we call it celebrations. So they would come <laughs> celebrate with us and uh, we'd feed them barbecue afterwards because you're going to be hungry after building a reef, you know? Mm-hmm. But some of those reefs now, we just put another grant application in. Some of those reefs are covered now by sand. So they did their job. That yeah. means we've added two, three feet of sand to these beaches. We want to put reefs back on top of that footprint and keep going with this more programmatic approach, you know? So we've, so, we've actually touched on a lot of things that we want to discuss oh, yeah. through this. So yeah. I, I want to pull it back a little bit. Let's talk about – you're with the American Literal Society. Could you tell us a little bit about the organization and what they uh, work to accomplish? Yeah, sure. So we're a nonprofit, and uh, we're headquartered out of um, Sandy Hook, so Gateway National Recreation Area. Uh, we have another office down in Millville, um, and that's my Delaware – that's the Delaware Bay Group. So I have some of my restoration team there, and then there's another group of, of society members that do more stormwater management and rain guards and things like that. Um, at the headquarters, we have uh, an education department, so that's more outreach. Um, for kids and things like that, to, to bring them to the coast, let them learn about the coast, empower them to care for that coast, you know, in that way. Um, we have advocacy. So that's where my boss, the executive director, he's with the legislator. Mm-hmm. And he's talking to him, you know, to say, hey, here's what we're seeing. How, how, how can we help you, you know, do something there? And then the restoration program that I do, um, I came from the private industry, and then I created a team that we have five right now on my team doing all this work, which is great. And it's a great breadth of scope on that team because I have wetlands guy, fish person, you know, marine biologist, horseshoe crab specialist, all these different people on that core team. But then we also pull in academia and other private consultants. Uh, like down in Delaware, we got Dr. Larry Niles and Stephanie Fagan. These are like world-renowned avian people. You know, Stockton University does our physical stuff. But overall, the, the bottom line is, the American Little Society is here to because we care for the coast, and we mm-hmm. want to empower others to care for the coast too. And it's I'm glad that you mentioned all those parts because I think those are some of the parts that not everyone thinks about when you think of restoration. I know there was a big project. I'm trying to remember which highway it was going into Ocean City. Um, it was one of the big bridges that was redone over the last 10 years, 15 years, um, and there was a certain time of the year where no construction could be done because of turtle. Uh, specific uh, turtle breeding. So it's there's a lot of factors going in to protect this and also restore it so that they can thrive that everyone is cognizant of and working together to try to fix. And I can't imagine putting all those puzzle pieces together. <laughs> uh, uh, we, we do it every day. You know, this, this public-private partnership that has been created has grown since, again, going back to Superstorm Sandy. It's not just one organization. It uh, my last project I did in Forked River Beach, where we created these really cool oyster reefs that we're still finishing up. There's about 14 or 15 partners on that. Mm-hmm. And that can be anybody. I mean, it can be an, an NGO like me, a nonprofit. It's the municipality. It's the county. You know, it's the state. It's the federal government. Um, it's you guys. You know, mm-hmm. it's the engineers uh, and academia. So it's all these components together that really give you that that breadth of scope and the detail that you need in that because we don't know everything. So we rely on our partners to help build the gaps. And that's actually another, I've 
already uh, reminisced about the foundations of our podcast that we've been doing for over three years now. But that was another reason we started was because from our perspective as a, a supplier of plants, we get to work with organizations like yourself that are really heavily focused on coastal marine in, environments. Uh, but then you also have like Ducks Unlimited and they're doing not the same thing, but similar concept, different uh, end goal, I guess. Um, and then you have gardening groups and, and Xerxes Society and all these different groups that were Or you may have using, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, yeah, you know. It's, using the same process to accomplish basically the same thing. They were storing habitat, but they had a different end user in mind. And, uh, and we mm-hmm. wanted to kind of highlight how the path is the same and really how a lot of these organizations work together. And if they aren't, they should be working together. But that's something you guys really champion is that you're working with so many organizations, whether it's uh, the public organizations or private organizations to complete a common goal. And uh, like, like you just said, you're relying on different people's expertise and you may have an organization that wants a, a different end goal, but it's the same process and you're going to get the same result. I mean, we, we also, you know, the community, the homeowners, that's mm-hmm. a big yeah. component of our partnerships. And we rely on those stakeholders to kind of let us know what's going on. Cause we're not there every day. They may have been there 50 years and seen these changes that we're just mm-hmm. seeing now. So it really comes in handy to keep them informed from the beginning all the way through. And they inform us, you know, and it kind of lets us figure out what next steps we need to do. Well, in in your opinion, as a starting point, since you've been with the American Literal Society, how do you feel what, – what is the current state of, of our coastline and marshes and how has it changed since when you started well, I'll give you an example because I can't speak for the whole state, but yeah, we're losing marsh. Um, sea level rise is happening, you know. Um, but an example, we have a project down in the mouth of the Morris River in Cumberland County, and that was creating hybrid breakwaters. And these aren't mm-hmm. small, they're big. This was a, about a five, six million dollar project, if not more. And state was a great partner on that with providing match. Uh, the funding was through a National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. So I think it was passed through through federal agencies and some other things. But it took us about three years from planning to implementation to do that project, design and everything. Within that time frame, on the first day going in to implement the project, we found while we're doing our final surveys, we lost 150 feet of marsh in three years. Wow, wow, that's that's hap- That's pretty rapid, right? Yeah. So we're like, well, what do we do on the fly? And now we have um, everybody mobilized. You know, that costs some money to get everybody down there. Everything's staged. We're ready to go. We all got together as a team and immediately did a redesign on that project. Um, and it's successful. It's in the ground now and it looks good. You know, we're going back to do some quar logs and plantings this season. But it just shows you that example that things are changing rapidly and we're seeing it all. I'm seeing it all around the state. Is yeah. there is there any – if you were to go back in time, let's say we had a time machine, was there anything that could have been put in place that could have – that could have changed some of the outcomes of Superstorm Sandy. Like, because I know there's missteps along the way. Because over time, you're learning what's right and what's wrong. And sometimes you have to make mistakes in order to right that ship and figure out how to fix it. Like, I, I realize that. Is, were, were we in a bad position before that storm hit? Like, granted, it's a superstorm. It's causing damage. But did did we learn from it? Like, did we learn what we need to do differently? I, I think we definitely learned a lot. You know, when um, after Superstorm Sandy, 
even communities and stuff realize that, you know, some of these nature-based strategies are way better than putting up a bulkhead, things like that, you know, because you're really reflecting things off the bulkhead. The bulkhead gets pounded. But after Superstorm Sandy, where I first did a, a maritime forest in Bradley Beach, I mean, we were pounded. There were, the dunes were gone. Uh, our boardwalk kind of was a secondary dune. And then after that, the sand kind of all came up. And any kind of structure that was man-made or human human built was gone. But for another invasive, black pine trees remained. And we, I started promoting that, say, look what's here. It stayed. It can, it can go through these storms. So what do we do? That's when we came back. And instead of building like a restaurant there or something like that, the town got together and the mayor and uh, we built a maritime force. So Let's start one. But to give that as a model to people to say, look at this. Now I'm working on a project, just finishing this up in South Riverside. And we talked about this before we got on with Albert Marine and others and the town of Neptune. And that's a 2,000 linear foot beach dune kind of a thing and sills and all that. But before we built that, they were going to do a bulkhead. And the town the town actually marched down the street with picket signs and said, we don't want that because it's going to destroy this beachy habitat where horseshoe crabs are spawning every year. It may not be a big population, but if you put this bulkhead up, it's going to scour that beach out and it's gone. Yeah. So here we are. Projects is done pretty much. And it's natural habitat. I think people are noticing, you know. Yeah. And, and can you describe uh, for folks who don't live in, in coastal areas how like a green infrastructure, like a dune or a salt marsh or that kind of thing, is going to have a different response to uh, to a storm surge or to a storm than a bulkhead would? Yeah, I mean, three words. It absorbs it. So, you know, it absorbs that energy, that wave energy, rather than reflecting. Mm-hmm. So you may lose that dune eventually over time, but it's gonna it's gonna fight that storm out, and it's not that expensive to come back and redo it, replant it, and go again. And that bulkhead, if I if I'm correct, that bulkhead as that water hits off of it is just creating increased energy downstream. So even though it may protect what's there, it may be hurting what's south of there even more. Is that correct? It could, you know. Depending on the drift and the current and what's happening yeah. there, I mean, but it's it's really pulling all that habitat away. Yeah. So how do you decide, like, how do you decide what restoration you're going to do or what project is coming up next? Is is there a list of things that you'd like to do? Is it how it's presented to you from other organizations? And where does the money come from to do some of these things? Yeah. So I mean, for after Sandy, it was out of urgency for a species. So our partners, they came to us and said, hey, the beaches are gone. The crabs are coming. Will you help? And so, yeah, we all got together. Now we're, now we're a well-oiled machine team, you know, that restores in Delaware Bay. Um, I've had others where it's a phone call from a homeowner saying, hey, I see this and I don't like it. What can you do to help us? Because we may lose our homes if it's not restored. So I get those quite a bit as well. Um, municipalities reach out. Now that they're seeing the work that we've been doing, we're getting more and more municipalities asking us if we can be advisors on things and as they're going through because they rather go towards a more natural kind of approach because they've experienced their bulkheads going, you know, and the yeah. town flooding more and things like that. And then, you know, some of it comes out of our own brains. So I might be driving home from work and I see something like, I want to do something there. To get the money to do it, the idea you have to put on paper. So now you're going to start writing your grant. And that's what we do. We write all our own grants. Um, we do all our own permitting, all that kind of stuff in our programs. We've learned all this along the way to kind of expedite the project. 
Um, and then you hope, you know, through either a state or a federal grant, uh, when I, ma- I mentioned National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, they're a big funder of ours. Uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife has funded a lot of stuff for us. And uh, you go from there, and then you piece it together. You know, another organization we're all involved in is uh, New Jersey Corporate Wetlands Restoration Partnership. Mm-hmm. And those guys help me out all the time. I know it's not a huge amount of money, but if it's up to 25 grand on a multi-million project, million dollar project, that's all you need to finish it. Mm-hmm. It's very important to have that funding. So they've been great to us, man. I think we've all been members of those since inception. That that group started. Yeah, it's a fantastic group. One one of the things that impresses me most about American Literal Society, and I'm, I'm going to touch on a couple things that we're going to expand upon, like oyster reefs and and reusing Christmas trees. <clears throat> but whenever I see social media posts, I am overwhelmed by the amount of participation and volunteerism that your organization gets because what you're able to accomplish through volunteers is amazing. How does, how, how hard is it to spread that public message of coastal resiliency to get people to care? And because it seems like you have a very passionate group that cares and that doesn't happen overnight. (laughs) doesn't happen overnight. No, we're, we're pretty passionate. I mean, Outreach to communities and, you know, the, the schools and everything, we do nonstop. And it's through not just through our education programs and others, but through our communications as well, like you mentioned. And then we build that into all our restoration projects. I mean, we even had the uh, U.S. military um, veteran program down in Delaware Bay for veterans from we had veterans in that program from the Korean War all the way from Afghanistan coming out. We pay them to help us. And being a vet myself. We love to talk, so we'll spread that word, you know, so it's not just on social media as much. It's face-to-face. That's important, too, and I think when people see that you're not abandoning the project or abandoning them, they want to be – they're engaged, and they, they latch on. I mean, volunteers are always asking us, can they help, and they're kind of the foundation of these projects, too, because they'll go on social media and talk about what they did, you know, mm-hmm. so it's like a ripple effect. Next thing you know, you're reaching 60 million people somewhere. You never know. I, yeah. I, I find coastal communities – are very passionate. I don't want to say more passionate, but very passionate because not only is it the place where they live, but a lot of their income depends on tourism, uh, okay. and they they yeah. need that area or or fishing mm-hmm. or you know so much recreation that without these things that kind of collapses. So without taking care of what you have, you don't really have anything. Mm-hmm. Um. So I, I love the involvement in that and some of the things that you've done, like when, when choosing resiliency projects, like let's say oysters, what how did building oyster reefs come about as part of your resiliency program? Well, they started back in, in Delaware Bay after Sandy. We put sand on the beach, but we're gonna lose sand. Mm-hmm. So how do we keep that sand on the beach? You know, so with our engineering team and Stockton again and uh, wildlife Refuge partnerships, we figured out that we we're going to build these shellbag reefs and start with that. It's very low impact development kind of a thing where you just, you don't need heavy machinery or anything like that. So not expensive. And you engage that community and trust me, they'll come back if it's good barbecue. And then, well, it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so they came back. Spanky's barbecue is really good to us. Um, oh, I've had Spanky's, to- I've had Spanky's barbecue. Yeah, they, it's like barbecue on wheels. They come right to you. So we're like, hooray, they're here. And people yeah. work even because <laughs> the they want to get to it, you know. <laughs> but that's where it started. And then through all that, we wanted to build upon things. 
So, you know, like at Fork at River Beach, they needed help and they reached out to us and they've been trying to do something for eight years. And we finally met a, a person's house and, you know, we talked it through, what can we do? And went after a grant for that because at that time, the state was offering funding for Barnegat Bay restoration work. And we awarded that. That morphed because, well, first the tide ranges are different. So Delaware Bay is like six to eight foot tides. So we couldn't have people come out and build reefs, right? Because they're they're going to be drowning or get stung yeah. by a clean yeah. jellyfish or something. So that doesn't work. Um, so with a six inch tide in Barnegat Bay versus a six to eight in Delaware, we had to kind of rethink things and we're constantly pivoting, you know, with everything happening. And we decided that you know the best thing we could put down there was not shell bag reefs, but maybe we use what's called a HESCO basket. Mm-hmm. And that's like a stainless steel cage, but the military uses them as barriers and fills them with sand and stuff. But we went, we filled the middles with rock and on the outside we put shell. And so far we set 32 million oyster on them, wow. you know, out there. And that covers the entire shore of Forked River Beach of Lacey Township. And everybody was just really helpful. The volunteers we actually used to build the cages that these things go into. And the cages were like five foot wide, 12 feet long. Wow. And we put 168 of them in the water. Wow. Wow. So, and, so imagine the value of a volunteer again, you know, yeah. building those cages, keeping up with the barges and the, the contractor putting them out. That was pretty big stuff. And yeah. it really shows that the community's commitment to protecting what, what's theirs, but building upon that over time. Yeah. And I do want to highlight another partner you have in this and, and ask, where do you get all the, the shells from for these reefs? So usually I say that's proprietary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know you probably don't want to give up the exact. Because then every, every restoration practitioner in New Jersey is going to be, hey, I need them. But we have partners down in Delaware Bay. Um, Atlantic Capes Fisheries really helps out with the whelk. Um, we've gone to some seafood suppliers. Uh, we have our own recycling program, Shuck It, Don't Shuck It. So mm-hmm. we have, I forget how many restaurants participating, but I'm just going to throw a number out to like 20. Wow. And that's that's in Monmouth County in we use shell from that as well on some of these projects. And then some of my subcontractors, if they don't use all their shell that they purchased, you know, by spec, they say, Hey, do you want shell? Do you want some of these plants we didn't use somewhere yeah. else? And we're like, thank you, man. That's awesome. It really helps. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh interesting. And this is something I was going to talk to you after about anyway, um, in regards to the CWRP, that corporate wetland restoration partnership is through, uh, and this, I don't want to get too off topic here through New Jersey farm bureau. I found out, that a lot of the New Jersey aquaculture uh, places are basically considered farms. And um, yeah. so they have representation through Farm Bureau, and I've got to meet and meet some of them, and they all speak glowingly of you guys and say how much they enjoy working with you guys. And then I was like, oh, I wonder if we could tie them into CWRP as well, because it does a lot of the CWRP money or projects. Some of that's going to you, and uh, maybe they'd be – and then we can have uh, oysters at every – CWRP meeting. That was I, that was really the end of the day. What I was getting is we can get get some free oysters every time we we get together. But um, definitely a connection yeah. there, you know, oh, yeah. between yeah. The, the agriculture and the oyster farming. And I've seen that the US, what is it USDA or something like mm-hmm. that. I don't I don't usually deal with them, but um, some of our oyster farmers have come to us and said, "Hey, you should look into this." Yeah. Oh yeah. How has how has the success been of the the oyster reefs that were manufactured and installed? Which ones are you talking about? Uh, the the project that you were just talking about with the uh, baskets. Oh, so it's doing well. Okay. Um, it's, it's still there. 
we like, we just started monitoring the biology because we just went in last year. All right. Um, yeah, we're, we're measuring and, and surveying with well, Stocking University is helping us with this. Um, any kind of sand that's a, coming at back, you know, accreting and looking at the, the submerged aquatic vegetation, how's that doing uh, behind these structures? Because we've created a quieter area, you know, by attenuating waves. And we've done it with double rows, just like we, we do down in uh, Delaware Bay. We learn wave hits it once, then it hits it again. And then some of whatever's in solution, that sand or whatever's in solution can drop out over time. And then it gets kind of quiet. You can see this on drone footage, you know, that we have done. Um, but, yeah, they're holding up. Awesome. We have a, yeah, we just had a, a stakeholders meeting uh, a couple weeks ago, I think. And uh, it went well. And there's, there's, new, there's more that needs to be done. It's never over. That's the whole thing. And like I tell everyone – the earth is dynamic and we have to be dynamic and flexible with it. If, if this is going to work, we can't be static and just say one and done and leave. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. You don't get yeah. to just build something and walk away. Like we, we talk about one of the big, the big key factors that keeps coming up is stewardship. Just mm-hmm. once these are done, once you're involved in a project that gets installed, is there stewardship involved still through American literal society to, to keep factoring in some of these projects? Absolutely. So we monitor these projects afterwards and, you know, we cobble together funding to keep monitoring, you know, longer than our grant period. But we also establish, again, we talked about volunteers and community. We establish community scientist programs and they do the work for us and they get to really kind of see what's going on with these projects. And then they give us the the data back and we kind of analyze that data and share it with them. And say, is this project being a successful project, or do we need to adaptively manage and kind of tweak it over time? So that's what's really helping us too. You know, throughout these things, we've developed community science programs too. That's pretty awesome. I, I like the idea of that. Um, let's talk Christmas trees. <laughs> this is something, uh, if I remember correctly, you have a, a program for, I, I guess, aftermarket Christmas tree <laughs> after you're done with them, yeah. uh, of a way to to yeah. use them structurally. Um, in our, our waterways, if we could discuss that a little bit. Yeah, so it kind of came out of the fact that where I live in Bradley Beach, um, my staff and I, you know, we were out. Well, anyway, our dunes have always been, uh, sand dunes here on the Atlantic side of Bradley Beach have had a Christmas tree core. And people would drop them off, and we've always had, always had plenty to get the sand started to start. And then we plant the dune grass in front of that to kind of really build those dunes. And, um, we were at a conference down in New Orleans, and um, they were talking about branch box breakwaters and how they work in low-energy environments. So you're taking all this brush and branch and kind of pushing it between these spaces of, say, you put two two-by-fours three feet apart, and you, that's your cribbing kind of a thing, you know, and then you tie it in. And we're like, we started a project in Point Pleasant at Slade Dale uh, Nature Sanctuary, uh, Natural Sanctuary, and it's low energy and the original design by our partners at that time, Princeton Hydro, who's also a member of NJCWRP. So we're all working, we're all meeting each other together and, and figuring things out, which is cool. Um, originally they did plan to do like a straight long kind of a sill all the way down to protect the marsh that we're losing there. And turns out after a couple of iterations, we're like, why don't we do this branch box thing? And we're like, yeah, let's try it. Reconfigure things in a way to really attenuate the wave. But then we said, we don't really have the brush and branches like they have down in New Orleans. But what do we have? And it clicked. We got Christmas trees every year. Mm-hmm. Why don't we use them? You know, and they use them in the dunes. Why can't we use them for marsh restoration? And it's it's been great so far. Point Pleasant, their Department of Public Works, 
every year collects the trees for us. Um, originally, check this out. Originally, the first year we were going to put the trees in, there was a drought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we had them on site in the woods. And the week before we're coming, uh, the town had to come in and chip them because it was a fire hazard. Uh, we're like, no, 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 this is horrible. Uh, but, but, dudes, there's always a silver lining, right, to every cloud. And it turns out that we partnered with uh, the Good Shepherd Lutheran Church, who had four acres of land. And Department of Public Works took their trees there. We staged them there until we needed them. And people could drop them off, too, at the same mm-hmm. time. So it was a great partnership that evolved out of that problem. You know what I mean? So we continue it every year. Um, and then the pandemic, it really showed us because we couldn't go on site for like a year and a half, basically. So we're like, what's happening on our site? You know, maybe one person goes, but you're kind of stuck at your house. So after a year and a half, we went and go, hey, man, these Christmas trees live out their life about a year and a half, and then they're gone. Mm-hmm. So now, you know, you'll see our campaign every year. Um, as Mayor Bob says, it's Christmas time in May, yeah. and here it comes. <laughs> yeah. You know? It's a call out for our volunteers to come out and help us restuff them. We'll be out there tomorrow finishing up Wow! that for this year. So we did it on Earth Day with uh, quite a few volunteers. And it's, it's, that is hardcore work because you're in waiters <laughs> all day. And yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting to watch. And people, people hang in and these volunteers are amazing. They will, they will stick it out. It's, it's kind yeah. of brilliant if you think about it. Like I, I didn't even make the connection until you were talking about it. In so much stream restoration, you think of – uh, brush mattresses mm-hmm. and uh, root masses that just get used to to help redirect water or or help stabilize uh, banks that they're creating because they they just need that that rough material to get it started. So why wouldn't you mm-hmm. incorporate that into a marsh? It just seems pretty <laughs> a brilliant way to recycle. Uh, something that needs to be recycled appropriately, yeah, and, and it's something I always see your your call go out for uh, for Christmas trees every year, and I always wondered who's coming the farthest to drop off a Christmas tree because they <laughs> care that much. Because another thing, going back to to volunteerism and and Fran um, alluding that people down the coast are more passionate, I think some of that's driven because, like well, like I mentioned earlier, we're. 50 miles away or 40 miles away from our New Jersey coast. But I remember countless trips going down to Long Beach Island or Island Beach State Park or all these different places as a kid. So there's a mental connection that I have down to those places more so than a lot of the stretches of road along the way. Um, and I know a lot of people, I have friends from from college that were in upstate New York that were taking family vacations down to Cape May or Long Beach Island or all these places. So they have that uh, that historical connection or historical connection with themselves to those places. So I was just wondering if people coming from farther distances saying, Hey, I want to give back, even if it's just my dried out Christmas tree at the end of the the holiday season to come and and drop them off with with no lights, ornaments or tinsel, please. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) We don't need any of that. Yeah. Yeah. I know a lot of people come to coast and and I just want to say real quick, I wasn't ghosting your brother. He called me Tom on my business phone and I, he didn't have my cell. And I, I just got it recently, but a hit you or him and your mother were coming to the beach and they wanted to say hi. Oh yeah. Like, oh. yeah. And it was, I was just so busy. And then I finally saw the message on my set on my business phone. I'm like, man, I got to reach out to that kid. Yeah. yeah. But when, when we think about our, like our horseshoe crab tagging program that we have in Delaware Bay and mm-hmm. I tag in Shark River Inlet too, with people, um, they come from all over the world. Yeah. You know, some people come in this is part of their vacation. Mm-hmm. You know, um, just in Shark River, a lot of people drive down for the night from Long Island 
you know, and you name it because they want to experience it, you know, and really see what's happening here on the coast. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually a good transition into the horseshoe crabs because yeah. that was one of the first exposures I had uh, with the American Little Society. I was still a kid, and I remember going with my parents who were with Pineland's Nursery before, and we were going and looking for horseshoe crabs, and we didn't find any. But, uh, but again, that was 15, 20 years ago now. But um, I know – Yeah, we tag, we tag yeah, thousands. Now, now there's years. tons that, that get tagged. Why – you mentioned it a little bit, but why are horseshoe crabs – so important uh, to this area yeah, and all just in general. Thank you because we, we've talked about, you know, enjoyment, vacations, community. We didn't talk about habitat. Yeah. This is a huge habitat and, and what depends on this. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's their eggs, you know, ecologically. They're, those eggs are so important, you know. What a flagship species and a foundational species because they feed everything, you know. So, if you're looking at the little the little minnows or the killifish, whatever you want to call yeah. them, they're going to feed on those eggs. And at least in Delaware Bay, what we've learned in time is that these eggs become exposed over the whole year. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the shorebirds coming in to fatten up and eat those eggs to fly to the Arctic to lay eggs to come back and then down to Brazil and stuff. But it's fish all year round mm-hmm. also. So it's, it's a foundational piece of Delaware Bay for sure. Um, and then we see it, you know, up in Shark River Inlet, Raritan Bay. Um, not as big as Delaware Bay, but it's there. And that, I mean, what I've seen too is when people tag or volunteer to help with a horseshoe crab, they fall in love with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been around for 450 million years or more, you know? Yeah. So it's it's been here a long time. So it's really important for for those eggs on the ecological side of the house. Yeah. And do you still do the, the volunteer tagging and all that as well where you can, I know there used to be like open sign updates. Yeah, Delaware Bay starts tomorrow night. No way. Yeah. And no way. Uh, Shark River starts uh, May 18th. Yeah. And where can people find, if they wanted to do that, where can they find that kind of info, information? Well, I think right now there's a waiting list for Delaware oh, Bay. Nice. Because it's fully booked. And that, wow. that can book out, you know, months in advance. Yeah. But they can go to our website, look under the events, and look up horseshoe crab tagging on that, and we'll, we'll pop up. Yeah, that's another one I'm selfishly asking because I got to make sure I get in there at some point and uh, and bring my my three year old out there. So you're always welcome, yeah. man. You got to come on down. Man. Yeah, yeah. I tell people, you know, if you're going to come down and you're local, stay the night because we usually tag pretty mm-hmm. late. Yep. Um, yep. have a nice dinner, come out and tag or something. Make it a really cool event. Stay yeah. the night. Oh, yeah. Maybe get an Airbnb or something on the bay, and mm-hmm. you're good. Nice. Because I don't want to overlook anything we may have missed. Are there any other programs that that we didn't mention some of the unique programs that you offer that that for community involvement or for for coastal resiliency. So besides our volunteer events, um, not that I know of, but we do a lot of tours and walks at Sandy Hook and things like that where people can get involved. Uh, if you're a member, it's free. If you're not, you might have to pay something like five bucks, ten bucks. I don't even know what that is. But they're great educational walks. And then coming up on June twentieth, if you're a member, it's Members Day. And that's a fun-filled day of people. We, we do all kinds of different events yeah. all over Sandy Hook. And then, yes, we have barbecue again. We, we see any barbecue people, huh? I, yeah. <laughs> I like I barbecue. That's what we're really down to. Yeah. <laughs> what the, you know, one of the factors we haven't really talked about was native plants. Um, for, for some of these projects, how do native – because we always have to tie it back to native plants. How do native plants factor in as far as coastal resiliency for what you're trying to accomplish? Native plants are my go-to. 
you know, that's what you really need here. And we're, we're seeing, and you probably see it too, we're seeing some changes in densities of some of these native plants due to climate change and some invasive invasives kind of coming in in different spots. But these are the plants that really anchor things in. You know, if, 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 I, want, if I want a site and it's right on the shoreline and it's eroding fast because it's all mowed turf, you know, you don't have the root that you're supposed to have and it's going to keep going away. You need to plant something with a thicker root that's more rhizomial, you know, that kind of a thing and use what's here and try to build that back. That's, that's, what, that's what I think about native plants. They're here for a reason. You know, it's I, I hear from a lot of people that just aren't familiar with it. They're like, oh, it's all one thing or it's it seems like a monoculture. But that's what naturally occurs. Like on the dunes, it is it is a limited amount of things. Mm-hmm. And in the marshes, it's definitely even more limited. But that's what's evolved over time to be able to handle those conditions. There's not too many things that are going to handle a tidal condition wet and dry twice a day from anywhere from – Five parts per thousand to thirty-five parts per thousand. You know, there's a reason that that survives, and it it helps our marshes. So it's it's a. Uh, I, I think people always look at it and say, "How can I improve upon it?" But sometimes you you don't need to improve upon perfection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you you yeah. even, uh, friend, you even got a call about it was about salt marshes, and it was uh, a designer, and that yeah. was, but that, they were. I don't want to say. I'm hearing about the second hand, but they too. were, but they almost seemed <laughs> how you described. They almost seemed a little disappointed that there was only like a, such a limited plant palette, but that's just what it is. It it's, was a, a firm from the West coast and they were trying to, to say, well, th- you know, what we have is a little bit different. It seems like we're not getting the full picture here. And I'm like, no, you're pretty much getting the full picture. That's it. Like, I'm yeah. sorry to disappoint you, but it's, it's pretty simple and it works. Well, Tom, you, met, you mentioned palette and that's something I always think about because, you know, these restoration sites are our canvas and those native plants are our paintbrushes. And, you know, that's kind of how I look at it. You can design, like when we did the maritime forest in Bradley, different things bloom at different times, different colors, different hues and different seasons. You can really make this thing pop, but in a natural way. So it's not overbearing, but it works, you know, and um, we did that, you know, with the different panic grasses and you name it, the shad bush. I, I love shad bush because when it blooms, it, it connects you to the fish. Mm-hmm. And the shad must be running, you know, so that's a cool story to tell somebody that may never even know that, you know. And and this may be beyond your, your reach, but can you speak about how the fish communities are thriving in that area? Like do you – I'm I'm sure I'm, I'm stretching a little bit, but have you heard like how some of this restoration is improving fish communities or, or how that would tie in? So I can only, only speak about what I see on our restoration sites. Um, and we're seeing a lot of usage and we do biodiversity studies to kind of see, has that changed from the beginning, um, where you may have only a few species there. Now we're seeing more species. So definitely when you build it, they do come and they've been, they've been looking for it. You know, and that's, that's how I feel. You know, there's a project we did in Shark River Island and, uh, it was a sill pretty much and extend the marsh out. And within days, there was tons of killifish schools back there, just moving around the birds and the herons are back you know, and they're feeding and there was no habitat there that could actually attract those species at that time, you know, so they were elsewhere. So even if it's not an attraction, they, they could use this habitat now, you know, it was useful habitat. What, what are some of your most, in, in your time there, have been some of your most memorable or favorite projects that you've worked on or more, or most proud of? <laughs> well, you know, I'm proud of all of them. And for some odd reason, even though I'm pushing 54 now, 
I still remember all of them. You know, I should be for starting to forget stuff. But, you know, the Delaware Bay work we've done, that's global. That has a global impact, you know. So that means a lot to us. Uh, the work we've done in Rec Pond and Spring Lake, opening up fish passage for the herring and monitoring that since 2006. I may not have funding right now, but I'll find some to keep monitoring. We've learned a lot for that, and we can supply that data, you know, along the eastern seaboard. Um, I think of the work we're doing now in the Forked River Beach area, down at the mouth of the Morris River. These are all steps. Um, Forked River Beach, to me, that project, you know, we're pioneering a lot of things down there to do good restoration um, in Barnegat Bay. So it's kind of like we're all learning together, but we're all working together to get there. And that, I think, is the most exciting part of this restoration. You know, you you can model it and do everything and think it's going to be super successful, but you have to be able to come back and tweak it, you know, and adaptively manage it later. And that's the two biggest words as a restoration practitioner to me is adaptive management and be able to roll with the punches. So you, you mentioned you, you started there. I, we had dealt with you prior to you coming to American Literal Society. What was kind of your career path that led you into this industry and what led you to American Literal Society? So that's a good question. You know, so I got into the, the business of marine biology when I was in the Air Force in Germany, and I just wanted to come back to the beach and have my, my kids one day or my, my child now enjoy the lifestyle that I had. How can I save that and, you know, do that? So I decided to get a degree in marine biology from Stockton, and then I got my master's later on while I was in the private industry, you know, as an environmental consultant. But to me, the environmental consulting firm, and I'm, it's not for everybody, and it just it didn't satisfy me on the inside. It didn't fulfill me in that way where it was more client-based. What I do for the American Little Society is what we do. You know, we're more passionate about it. We decide together as a team what's the best for the environment, and we're our own clients, you know, when, when you think about it that way. So when my buddy called me up from the society and he said, hey, man, um, I'm leaving. You might want to try out for this job as, you know, the restoration program director. And uh, after he said that, I said, hey, Bill, you know, uh, I already sent my resume just now while we're talking. (laughs) (laughs) It was that quick. It was like button pressed. I was ready. I was ready to go somewhere to do something more fulfilling. And luckily, I I got the job and, you know, I've been there ever since. I I told my boss, Tim, I said, you're probably going to have to take me out here in a pine box because this is where I'm supposed to be. (laughs) I've said that about about here. Although I'm I'm worried about someone trying to put me in a pine box to get me out of here. <laughs> right. Uh, the, and and where were you originally from? You were you were saying you wanted your children to have a, a coastal experience like you. Or where where were you, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Grand Strand, Myrtle Beach, but South okay. Strand. Okay. So Garden City, Surfside Beach. Very nice. Yeah, some, some of the ideas that I still get in my head is where my parents had taken me to, like the Huntington Beach. And we lay in the back and take naps in the sand dunes, you know, behind the back dunes and the warm sand on your back. And I'm like, that's where the maritime forest idea came from. Cause I'm like, wow, look at all this cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I want this for my kid. You know, it's, it's the simple things in life that mean so much. I think and laying in that warm sand and taking a nap for an hour, man, I, I want her to feel that, you know? Yeah. I did that at one point and, uh, and then my boat started floating away and I, luckily I woke <laughs> up <laughs> before it got too far. <laughs> but, but there's something about yeah. <laughs> there's something about that area too. I know our propagator here, uh, his parents lived in Oak Island, uh, North Carolina for a while. I had in-laws that lived in uh, uh, Ocean Isle, 
Ocean Isle Beach, just just north of the South Carolina border. There's something about that area that's just it calls you back. I I don't yeah. know what it is. <laughs> yeah, I used but, to surf in Ocean Isle, so I know you're I know where you're at. All right. Yeah, I mean that's that area is just I have fond. We would we would vacation there for a couple weeks every summer uh, when the kids were young, and I know they have fond memories of that, and I know how they feel about it. So it's I I see how or understand how that area calls back to you and and wanting to protect it uh, and make yeah, sure the that outer it's banks always especially. There. I mean, you look at the Outer Banks and you're down there camping for a couple of weeks. Or I really love Nova Scotia. I was up there for a couple of weeks camping and. Um, but just how resilient these things are to storm and all this Cape Hatters, man, what a, what a beautiful place. And it's all protected pretty much. And it weathers the storms, you know, I mean, yeah, Frisco got cut off and, but somehow it, they always seem to figure out what to do next with, with more natural approach down there. So it's inspiring. It's important to, to, to spread that message. And it's, you know, it's nature, nature was capable of protecting this for so many years mm-hmm. on its own you know and yeah we make changes and yeah there's there's things that are beyond our control with at this point with climate change you may be able to slow it down but you're not going to stop it um mm-hmm. that yeah. to kind of look at, like how did it survive all these years before us there there's a way and it, and it makes sense and it's just getting that message out there where people where it clicks with people or connects with people i, I yeah. i've talked with many people locally that 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 feel that idea is a lie. They they feel oh no it's you, you need to have a bulkhead that's the only way it works the other stuff doesn't work mm-hmm. and it's just I, I don't want to say ignorance it's just they haven't been educated or they haven't come into focus with that yet. And that's why the society's out there every day <laughs> making sure that people see this you know um, people hear about it. It's not like we're telling you what to do we're just showing you what we're doing and if you can learn that on mm-hmm. your own from us. Come on, be part of the team. Let's get let this get, get this job done. You know, if if every homeowner and every resident, if everybody across the globe just acted locally, it'd have a global impact. Yeah. You know, we got to connect the puzzle pieces. That's all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's you know, for me, it's important. You know, and at this Sami conference, um, they were showing beaches where people walked away or mm-hmm. or saying, you know, they. There, there was conflict, and it was it was causing issues in certain beaches. But if you show that community involvement, I know at some point, if it's government money, they're going to look at it and say, "How long can you keep reinvesting into this this area and not have it work?" Or if you have a community that's passionate, it makes it worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one thing I'll add about that that Sami conference was um, what was really interesting. Was the, I can't remember what presenter it was, but they're actually talking about how you can use some of this gray infrastructure, the bulkheads and, and uh, seawalls, that kind of stuff, combined with green infrastructure. And the the green infrastructure was almost like just what was on top, and you'd have some like a concrete barrier or something underneath. That was your fail safe. That was because the dunes, yeah. like you kind of mentioned, they're I don't want to say they're designed to fail. Their job is to absorb a lot of that energy, but some of that is them them eroding at the same time. And you get too much erosion, they're going to eventually go away. So it was basically you have those once or twice in a lifetime storms like storms like Sandy was for us. Um, you have the the dune there on top, but you also had some gray infrastructure underneath for if that storm was too powerful for that dune structure. You still had something there that could 
maybe just last that little bit longer. And that was a really interesting concept because I never really thought about it that way. We often talk about it as just one or the other. Um, but even some of the stuff you're doing with the, the oyster reefs is combining. It's a conventional great infrastructure, but then you're adding a lot of green elements to it. Um, just a fascinating yeah, thing. It's, it's, it's another type of living shoreline technique, yeah. you know, Tom. It's, it's hybrid living shorelines where you're using some of that hard structure and then greening it up and softening it up, yep. you know, at the same time. Yep. And there's not like what I've noticed through all these projects, there's not just one fix it. There's multiple mm-hmm. ways and you have to connect those habitats together. They were all there for a reason too. So you, you do the oyster reef and you do the marsh and you do this, the berm and the sand, you know, all these together, um, depending on the, the energy of your, the area that you're working in and it has a better impact, you know, mm-hmm. so you can keep, you can reduce those erosion rates because you're putting up lines of defense at different spots. We did a project in Shark River Island, um, which is a hybrid. I have a, quite like two or three hybrids now. Mm-hmm. And that involved uh, concrete mattresses on the edge. And we learned from that that if we, we between the cracks of these concrete mattresses, like little bricks tied together by cables, you know, they didn't scour, which was great. They kind of sink into, into the substrate. And then we tied in marsh after that and extended that marsh out 90 feet uh, with some quar logs behind a marsh sill. Okay. So mm-hmm. kind of all these different strategies. One thing we learned, we, we went in and we could have probably planted spartina, the, the, the low marsh stuff in the cracks of those bricks in the ma- in the mattress and really soften it up. We wanted to watch it. So we planted a patch because mm-hmm. we weren't sure. Came back. Some of that took, some of it didn't, but this thing started sedimenting in between the cracks. Now we can't find where the cracks are. We're like, oh man, <laughs> so we got we got to figure a way to do that to soften that shoreline up, you know. Mm-hmm. But you're right, you know, under some of these marsh restorations, there's rock. Mm-hmm. You know, and you it's, know? I'm glad you both mentioned this because there are projects that, for as much as we love green infrastructure, it's it doesn't always solve the problem. And it's mm-hmm. we, you know, we've had hard conversations with people where they just wanted to use core logs and we're like the fetch is too great the energy is too great you know you've already lost it once you're going to lose it again you you know you need to incorporate some of these other factors like you can still use them but maybe you need some breakwaters in there maybe you need to to add some of these other things to make it successful because there's factors that happen elsewhere that you can no longer change so uh i i like that there's creative ways of incorporating both to make sure you're filling both needs and and you're successful yeah i mean that's what we're doing at mouth of the morris so you know you have the breakwaters in place they're hybrid you have shell behind that you know for the oyster and then as you get towards the marsh now it got a little bit quieter there you know because you're breaking up that wave energy now we can stake in the quar logs at the elevation that we want to collect the sediment to grow mm-hmm. the spartina and kind of step it towards those breakwaters over time Exactly. That's neat. Mm-hmm. So how can our listeners – now that they're listening to this and they're getting all passionate too and we're drumming up childhood memories and they want to volunteer and get involved, how can our listeners do that? Well, I guess they know they really don't want to go to my business phone after talking to <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, so probably the best way is to go to our website and look on our events page. Or you can always email me, you know, or my staff. I have five staff. Like I said, we got Shane and Quinn and Tony, Tony Rose down in Delaware Bay. And I have Zach and Julie, that's with a K, um, up in Sandy Hook with me. And our emails are real easy. It's our first name, at literalsociety.org. All right, awesome. We'll get back to you. And we're going to put literalsociety.org in the show notes uh, so that people know where mm-hmm. to go. So that that's easy enough. 
And just just for this is for me, not even our listeners. Um, are there other sections of America like we deal with Don Reapy, American uh-huh. letter? That's is that New York? That's Jamaica, our Jamaica Bay office. Oh, okay. I didn't mention that. And then we have a a guy who does tours and stuff down in I think Sarasota. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. All right. So I didn't realize he had offices else, elsewhere. So, like I know we dealt with Don, and he does a lot of salt marsh uh, plant material through us. So yeah. It's, yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. So I think we're at the time of the show where we always ask, and I'm really curious to hear what this is. It's always our last question. It's our simplest yet hardest question that we ask sometimes, and that is, what is your favorite native plant? Well, I <laughs> I think it depends. It depends on where I'm restoring. So I don't have just a favorite. You can you can you, mention a couple. That's okay. We well, don't hold everyone to 50, one. About 50 maybe. <laughs> I'll tell you what. My favorite native plant is whatever comes from Pinelands Nursery. Ooh, <laughs> I like that. I like that. Wheeling, wheeling and dealing. Wheeling. <laughs> but, you know, I like – we already talked about I like the shad bush. Yeah. I think it's really cool and it tells a story. Love groundsel bush. That, that's awesome. Um, red cedar. Love it. Beach plum. I like beach plum, but I have a hard time getting it to grow. But when it does grow, finally, you've got an edible, which yeah. is really yeah. cool to tell people you, you can make some jam out of that, you know. And northern bayberry is really cool, too. So all these ones I always get from you guys anyway. And goldenrod, if you don't like it, I like it. I'll get, I'll get allergies, but I'll plant goldenrod. <laughs> yeah. Those are all you great choice. I think groundsel bush is one of those extremely important adaptable plants that doesn't get enough love. Especially for late flower blooms too, for for late season pollinators. But I mean, but I mean that could take the salt. That can grow on a crack in a in a along the side of a highway, and it's it's and it, beautiful and adaptable. It outcompeted Japanese knotweed. Wow! Wow! Yeah, that did, and so did um. Well, we kept planting over time, but goldenrod did as well. So once the established, and we were this is at a maritime forest, of course. Um, I lost most of my knotweed, which is great. You know, all these plants started establishing and just took over. What you know, obviously, I think of Phragmites off the top of my head. But what are the the most difficult invasives that it, that can take that that saline environment that that are starting to take over? You mentioned well, yeah, knotweed, definitely, definitely frag and knotweed. Um, we had other plants that were more low to the ground, like black medic, um, a couple others like that. We figured something out by just serendipity on Shark River Island about frag and how to kind of get rid of it without herbicides or anything. And it was like this black kind of a weed covering mm-hmm. that we put and we replanted everything else like panic grasses and all that great stuff, you know, and marsh elder and cut holes where we planted it, but left that there. Came back the next year and there was frag growing around it when I, because I didn't want that there. I wanted coconut fiber or something that would go away because um, this won't go away. But I cut a little piece out and looked up, and all the roots that I saw from the frag were bleached out and dying. Oh. So I just put it back. We've been on that site now three years, and there's still no frag growing underneath that weed barrier. But the other stuff's growing. That's pretty amazing. You know, one yeah. of the things that, that we always think about for a lot of these restorations where there is frag that – you know, it's it's almost impossible to dig out the root systems uh, because I mean, those grow through concrete. Yeah, <laughs> and know? and those rhizomal mats are so deep, and and if you don't get it all, you 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 waste it your time. But it's always difficult to think that these things are getting sprayed that close to 
to a water source and to be able to control that without doing any spraying is amazing. Yeah, I'm not down with it, you know, with the spraying. But you also, when you're stabilizing that shoreline, you want to keep that root mass as best as you can. Mm-hmm. So it does provide a service, even though, you know, like we learned with Japanese knotweed, and we did this all by hand with volunteers again, you know, coming out in the hot sun or whatever, you keep cutting it down, cutting it down, cutting it down. And you probably have more experience in this than I do, but it takes all the energy out of its roots to grow and eventually it kills itself. Mm-hmm. But you still have that root mass underneath, yeah. you know. And that's important for structure. Definitely important for it. We, yeah. we talked about that just like the Christmas trees. So um, we always end with a final thought, and this is where we, we start by throwing throwing the floor over to you, uh, and you can use the time however you want. You can summarize, promote something, mention something we didn't mention, but the floor is all yours. Well, thanks. You know, um, and I appreciate you guys having me on today. I know it took a lot to get us scheduled. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess I was supposed to be like an episode 15 or something 10 years ago. It was you know? a long yeah. time ago, yeah. Yeah, we had originally, yeah. and then when we had to – do it and i canceled like last minute was because um i got called to testify uh for the new jersey nursery and landscape association about the pending invasive species bill and um there's some someone else who's supposed to do it and then they could i had to back out last minute and it was like well we kind of want someone there you you live close i'm like this is this is probably pretty important that i go and do, <laughs> do this but right. but we're glad we finally got yeah, it yeah we're glad we wrong. finally got to do this yeah, and I, I hope, you know, the people that listen to your podcast, um, and I will start, sorry, because I haven't been that tech savvy, but, you know, I hope they get out of it that nature is our community too, and it really can provide some goods and services that we all can use over time. So it's important to use nature to, to the best that you can. That's why we implement these projects. You know, they're getting bigger and bigger, but the original ones were models to kind of show people. You know, I take I take a university out, Kane University, out to like four sites almost every year now and get the, the students, their hands in it and kind of really understanding all the different pieces. Like you mentioned in the beginning, Fran, there's so many different pieces that you kind of have to think about. It's not just doing the restoration. It's everything else behind it as well. So I hope to see more people uh, putting rain gardens in and, you know. Call my no, well, not call my myself. I'll, I'll make sure yeah. I don't put that in the show. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, myself, you know? <laughs> I don't mind. I answer that too. But really, Tom, do you want to? You want to go, or you want me to go? Yeah, I can go. All and right. um, and I kind of hit on it a little bit before, but that's so many people vacation here throughout their lives, and maybe they have vacations planned for this summer. Um. Look up the American Little Society, go on their events page, and try and tie that into your vacation if you're in that area. Even if you're you're further south of New Jersey, further north of New Jersey, try and take a day and uh, and do one of these things. Um, although you got to have to sign up if you want to do horseshoe crab tagging or horseshoe crab tagging. We just learned you got to sign up early, so start looking now. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's it's a great way to kind of see what goes into these these coastal ecosystems. And kind of get it like peel back the curtain, get a behind the scenes look. It's not just a boardwalk and, and a beach and sun and sand and and uh, and the ocean. There's a lot more going on there to protect those those ecosystems and and keep them there for again generations to come. I think I and I'm I think I'm touching on what everyone else has kind of touched on at this point. But the, here's nature supporting communities. You know, it, it those communities exist because of nature that is there and and. It doesn't go without work and it doesn't go without help. 
Uh, it takes a lot of people and a lot of money to, to keep these thriving as an ecosystem. And, and it is an ecosystem and we're a part of it. And I think everyone's kind of – you know, that ideology has changed over the decades and I think everyone's really in tune and it shows by the amount of uh, volunteers that you get, or especially for horseshoe grabs and people wanting to be a part of it and understanding what it does. And it ties to all of us emotionally. We all want to see this, you know, this part of our state thrive and survive because it means so much to all of us. We identify with it. There's TV shows about it. Um, it's it's a part of who we are. It's kind of ingrained in us, and it's it, it's nature supporting us, and we need to take care of it. And I think I think we're we're heading in the right direction. There's a lot of fantastic work. And and it's going to continue to go in that direction, and I hope we get it right. <laughs> I I think we will, but I think that's that's pretty much it. I pretty much just paraphrased what everyone else has said. <laughs> well, you did a good job. Friend, thank you. So thank you. Yeah, good job. Yeah. So that's going to wrap us up for today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening to uh, Captain Al Majeski from the American Little Society. For more information, you can visit their website. It's uh, www. Uh, literal, which is L-I-T-T-O-R-A-L society.org. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pylons Nursery. Thank you to the egocentric plastic men for contributing our theme music. Make sure you stream or buy their songs uh, wherever you consume music. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet or at Pinelands Nursery and also at YouTube at Pinelands Nursery Don't forget about the question and comment line. You can call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. You can ask a question or leave a comment. We'll do our best to play it on a future episode of The Buzz. And uh, make sure after you listen to this, head over to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group and talk about it because I I know a lot of our listeners live in those communities or may have even volunteered at these events. We'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, definitely. So you can buy Native Plants Healthy Planet merch at our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. Just click that link at the top. It takes you to our our Teespring store, and there's a lot of cool designs up there. Nothing nothing like – literal about it it's uh, but maybe we got to create up a, a shirt for that it's um we have well we have one for xerxes society we have one for um a whole bunch of different things yeah. now so uh maybe i have to come up with a, a fish centric or horseshoe crab centric phrase this is going to challenge my oh, my creative juices <laughs> but right. um but we don't keep any of the the profits from those shirts uh they all go to organizations that we think are doing a really good job of promoting the native plant message, doing stuff, boots on the ground type work with native plants. So, um, yeah, so I got to check and see what our, our lump sum is back up to oh, and okay. how we got to divvy this up at yeah, some time. I haven't, haven't had a chance of, to look in a while. Yeah, we haven't <clears> done a state of the merchandise for well, a while. So, and you can listen to our podcast, Native Plants Healthy Planet, at that same website, but you're probably going to listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, really wherever you consume your podcasts. Uh, do us a favor when you're there. If you leave a five-star review, that goes a long, long way. Make sure you're subscribed, and if uh, you grab a friend's phone, you can subscribe and give a five-star view there. Do a little write-up with it. That is uh, just makes us feel good. It warms our hearts to yes. see the the nice, kind words, and it kind of gives us a little direction on what what works well, what yeah. we should skip next time. We, Those we kind love of the feedback. So, all right. With that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. Coming up next week, we will have a buzz episode, so make sure you tune in for that. And until then, keep it native.
Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.